This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, I'm very excited to share with you an interview I did with one of the most interesting people I met in the United States. His name is Bill Friedman, and he spent his entire life working in Las Vegas alongside the gangsters who built the Las Vegas Strip. That's right, Bill has spent his years working in, researching, and also writing about the history of Las Vegas. And in fact, he's also run a few Las Vegas casinos himself. So this interview is split up into three sections. Part one is about Bill's background and the gangster history of Las Vegas. Part two is about casino management and how casinos are designed to keep players focused on gambling, one of my favorites. And part three is about marketing and what you can learn from how gangsters operated their Vegas casinos. Now, I do want to mention that the audio quality for this episode is a little off as we did record this interview via phone, but I know that the content is absolutely fascinating and will more than make up for that. So let's get started with part one, Bill's background and the gangster history of Las Vegas. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Bill Friedman, and I've spent my life in the casino business. I started when I turned 21 in Nevada, uh, spent many years in Nevada, uh, started as a dealer, ended up being the only person who ever managed two uh, strip casinos at the same time, uh, taught a course called Casino Management at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, which is known as UNLV, and um, uh, that was for 10 years. It was the first university course in casino management. Today at UNLV, you can get a master's degree in the subject, <laughs> and uh, I've written uh, two business books uh, on uh, casino management, and now I'm writing the histories of uh, the men who built the Las Vegas gaming industry, and I say men because for the first half century, uh, there was no women executives. That's a that's a fascinating uh, career history, and I, I think it's quite rare to have somebody who has dedicated their entire life to, uh, to 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 gaming and casinos. So um, I'm really happy to and, and excited to have you on the show today. Um, so, Bill, I wanted to explore a little bit about kind of how you got into this industry. You know, you've got quite an impressive, um, an, an impressive and also interesting background. So, let's kind of wind it back to the start a little bit and and uh, explore how you got into uh, into the casino industry. Well, uh, my interest started because when I was seven years old, my parents took me. To, we lived in Oakland, uh, California, across from San Francisco. And my parents took me for a week to stay in a friend's cabin, and there was a small casino at Lake Tahoe, and they, I was totally fascinated with the blackjack dealers, um, the way they handled the cards and the dice, and being a miner, they said, you're going to have to stand a few feet away from the table, and I spent my afternoons watching them deal, and I came home and I told everyone I want to become a Las Vegas casino dealer when I turn 21. <laughs> uh, and it was a very tainted business then because it was well known that <clears throat> organized crime controlled much of it. And every other kid I knew wanted to be a fireman or a policeman. The day I turned 21, I did go to Las Vegas and ended up becoming a dealer uh, at Lake Tahoe, uh, when the Sahara Tahoe opened, which at that time was the biggest casino in the world, and I uh, dealt there for three years, and the men that were in the, they called it the table pit area, the pit executives, most of them had been involved in illegal gambling, because when Nevada legalized, it had, had of course, no uh, back uh background in the casino business so every time a new hotel would open every time a casino would make a major expansion they'd have to bring in dealers and executives from the illegal casinos across America yeah and I might just yeah. pause there for, for a sec Bill so casinos weren't always legal here in, in the United States oh no uh, they were uh, uh, 
absolutely illegal except for Nevada when they legalized them in 1931, but you found them in many uh, cities across America because people wanted gambling, and uh, the uh, politicians and the police, of course, took bribes, but th- there was more to the story than that. Uh, they were generally not in the big cities, but in a small town near it. And they uh, employed local people who got big salaries and tips. They bought all of their food uh, from the local farmers and ranchers. And so they were, and they brought in tourists, so they, uh, politicians and the police actually uh, believe they were doing the right thing. Their state may have made it illegal, but the people that put them in office wanted the casinos there. And um, it really worked in these small towns. And and so outside of major cities uh, across America, you would find them. So there was people uh, working in these illegal casinos and they'd, they'd have to, to ship them all in when a new um, legal casino opened in Las Vegas. Right, or, 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 you know, Reno and Lake Tahoe, those were the three big gambling centers in the country. Yep. And, and, and I was fascinated with these men's backgrounds because they were the strongest individualists I've ever encountered in my life. Um, and every evening when I'd get off work, I'd try to get one of them to go for one of the executives to go for a nightcap and I'd sit there like a little boy at his father's knees listening to what life is all about and they described um, what their existence was and they used to say that they uh, bought protection from the police and over time as I listened I realized well they bribed the police not to harass them but they got no protection at all. They were illegal. They couldn't call 911 and ask for help. So if someone robbed them, if someone said, we're taking over your establishment, they had to defend themselves. So these guys, uh, many of them have been shot, knived. Uh, they were very, very tough hombres because they were alone in a world of gangs and had to stand up to them. And uh, as I said, they were the most fascinating guys I'd ever met. And uh, I wanted to research their backgrounds, but working, I couldn't do it. And then ironically, uh, the Vietnam War came along. And I got drafted, and I declared as a conscientious objector, which is mm-hmm. uh, a whole area of law here in America. And under the uh, law, the selective service system, which did the drafting, uh, had to have the FBI uh, study my background to find out if I truly qualified for this designation. So- and when they got done, they said... Um, you have lived the most unique life we've ever found of anybody. You're the only person that has penetrated organized crime. You live with these people. You socialize with these people. And yet you have never committed a felony yourself. Mm -hmm. And they said that what we normally do is we have you spend your two years that you're drafted working in a hospital near your home, cleaning bedpans so that you do not benefit from this designation because, of course, there are people losing their lives fighting. And um, they said, in your case, we're going to give you the option. You're the only person that's had the opportunity to study how organized crime works, how it was developed. So if you prefer, you can spend two years hanging out with gangsters in Las Vegas. And I took that option. And so on my website, uh, which I will plug, Bill Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N author dot com, there's the draft and the honorable discharge. And they ordered me for two years to work for the School of Criminology at the University of California, Berkeley. And they, in turn... Uh, uh, ordered me to spend my two years hanging out with gangsters in Las Vegas. And um, there was a great criminologist who's now gone. He designed the program. I never asked a question that wasn't at least 10 years old. 
so no one would think that this was a law enforcement sting, um, except for murder, which no one talks about. Um, uh, the statute of limitations was well over, so they knew there'd be no repercussions talking to me. And um, when I wasn't interviewing people, I was in the university library, and over a period of years, I read 157,000 old newspapers, court records, legislative records, uh, 200,000 pages of FBI reports. Um, and then I interviewed almost 600 of the men who pioneered the industry. Many of them were in the casinos, and uh, I've finished one book, and I'm working on a second one right now of these men uh, who came here because... Uh, it took me years to put this picture together um, because the three largest gangs in Prohibition, and these were not uh, running their own distilleries, they were importing the finest liquors from around the world in absolutely enormous quantities. So I just wanted to, to ask about this selective service that you were doing, working with Berkeley in California and the FBI. Was that kind of like an undercover sting operation that you were involved no, in? No, absolutely not sting at all. The, the FBI did the report on me. They had nothing to do with the research. It was all with the University of California. I had no contact with the FBI once I was drafted. It was only when they were studying my background. J. Edgar Hoover headed the FBI here for 48 years, and every year he lied to his two bosses, the President of the United States and the Attorney General, uh, who he worked for, to Congress and to the American people, and he said there is no such thing as organized crime or the mafia, and he wouldn't let his people investigate them, so nobody had any knowledge of what organized crime was all about. And that's why they had the appeal uh, to have me do it, because this was the first opportunity anyone had, and it was purely for research purposes. Um, they wanted me, one, to figure out how it operated, but second, they were hoping that if I got in far enough, I could get the history, which I do in my 30 illegal years to the Strip. I have the whole history of how organized crime developed, all the major gangs. I focus on these three because my interest is them ending up in Vegas, but they dealt with everybody, um, and they were very, very unique. Their business values were incredible. The seven uh, major leaders of these three gangs, they or their associates built 80% of the Las Vegas Strip hotels over a 20-year period. That's starting with the Flamingo, uh, Ben Siegel's Flamingo in 1946, all the way through Caesar's Palace in 1966. And so my first book, 30 Illegal Years to the Strip, covers how the underworld operated because these three gangs were very unique had to deal with everybody else and then after prohibition uh their next venture uh these guys all went into the casino business and they built very high-end elegant casinos which are far finer than anything in las vegas today and they were fronted by the best uh well superstar showrooms uh, the finest restaurants in their area, and behind it, when you got done with the entertainment or the dinner, uh, the gambling hall beckoned you. Then uh, in the late 40s, they started uh, reform movements across the country to close down casinos, and every time they'd get closed down, these guys would move on to Las Vegas, and that's how the Strip was built. The reason that I was fascinated with these guys and ended up uh, just loving them is all of organized crime wants to separate you from your money. Gamblers are unique in that they want your money like the rest of organized crime, but they want to do it without physically hurting you. 
I can't stand and never associated with anyone that was involved with crimes where they exploited, threatened, abused people. I just avoided them like the plague. But the gamblers were a whole different breed. All of the men who came into Vegas and the men who led this, and they were investigated time and again throughout their lives by law enforcement, they never committed any crime except illegal liquor and illegal gambling. Uh, most of it was casinos. So these men only went into those two crimes uh, because they didn't want to physically hurt anybody. And uh, so it was a completely different breed of person. What's amazing is the leaders of these three gangs, and this is all in my book, 30 Illegal Years, these three gangs became the most powerful criminals in the history of America. And they it's absolutely awesome what these kids uh, that came out of these ghettos uh, achieved. They got involved in two gang wars. They didn't start them. They didn't want to be in them. But they had to survive, and they won. And when they did, they ended up... Uh, with Charlie Luciano uh, becoming the boss of bosses of the mafia and the head of the most biggest mafia gang in New York. Uh, but they couldn't stand uh, the crimes that the rest were committing, so they completely separated themselves and let the rest of the people do what they did, and they all stayed with gaming um, because uh, uh, prohibition came to an end. And they preached against violence. And it's not something where they gave it verbal lip service. They they opposed three things. They opposed violence, they opposed vendetta, and they opposed um, monopoly, which are the three tools of organized crime. And during their 25-year reign, first uh, Charlie Luciano and then Costello being the uh, boss of bosses, it is amazing how much gangland violence went down in America. I mean, what they did was absolutely phenomenal. And um, uh, they totally preached against vendetta because uh, all that did was make the world more dangerous because you kill someone, they've got brothers and associates who are going to come after you. And finally, uh, they totally opposed monopoly. Their whole pitch was, hey, there's enough for everybody. Why are we killing each other? And uh, Meyer Lansky and Ben Siegel were Jewish, so they were not uh, members of the mafia, but they whole life they were associated with Luciano and Costello as their advisors. Uh, they opened uh, legal casino gambling in a number of cities in America, and they'd go in and get some police and politicians and prosecutors on their side, and instead of saying, okay, this is our city, we're running it, stay out, they called everybody, all the other major gangs, and said, come on in, uh, we've opened it up to gaming. Uh, no other crime here, but we've opened it up to gaming. And the irony is that every city that they opened up is on a list the FBI has and they call them open cities. And every one of those open cities was opened by one of these two guys. And to this day, three quarters of a century later, there are multiple gangs there and they live together and no one claims territorial disputes. You do your thing, you let everyone else do theirs. And, but these were businessmen. Um, uh, who were in illegal businesses, but businessmen, they had figured out way back then, you would think that if you had in a city, outside a large city, one casino, it would do fabulous. But they had figured out way back in the 1930s that if you turn it into a gambling center, and if you have five casinos, it will draw so many more people. People love gambling centers. Players love gambling centers. So if you have five casinos, the total win will be seven times what one casino would have. 
It, it's uh, counterintuitive. You think the monopoly would make all the money, but it's when each place made more money by having competition than by being by itself. So these were the guys that taught me. They welcomed everyone to Vegas. They taught me the business. Um, they totally lived by their word. Uh, I meant when they, my father had a lot of integrity and so did his friends, but these guys, I meant they just kept drilling it into me. You always tell the truth. You always keep your word. And they not only did well in the underworld, but they became the most powerful uh, political kingmakers in the overworld. And again, this is all in my book. Their reality of who they were and what they were is very, very different from what Hollywood has been presenting all these years. Mm -hmm. These guys knew how to handle people, so people trusted them. And everything was done on a handshake. And in Vegas, until 1980, there were no contracts. Everybody did everything. It was an incredible city to live in. Everybody did everything on a handshake, and everybody lived by their word. If you talk to anybody who was a resident of Las Vegas prior to 1980, I mean, every one of them will tell you the same thing. This town was a lot better when the mob was here. But remember, this was a different group of people. You go to any other city, they're exploiting the population. In Vegas, they protected the population and made the town economically boom. This is my interview with Bill Friedman, and you just heard part one, Bill's background and the gangster history of Las Vegas. Next up is part two, where I talk to Bill about casino management and how casinos are designed to keep players focused on gambling. This one's really fascinating. We talk about how casinos implement maze layouts, how there's no clocks or windows anywhere, and also the myth of casinos pumping pure oxygen into the air. Or is it a myth? Also, listen out for some of the hidden marketing and business lessons. Um, Bill doesn't specifically call these out, but they are hidden in there. Things like customer service, understanding your customers' needs, and personalization, those kinds of things. So let's get back into it. What is casino management? Well, historically, the number one job of a casino manager was to be able to spot cheating of all types. the guys who built Vegas uh, ran very honest casinos. They understood that if you don't have any winners, you're going to get nothing but people that are addicted, which is a very small percentage of the population. So they ran very honest casinos uh, around the country uh, illegally before they came here. But... Uh, the other places, there was many casinos that cheated, and it was unbelievable when I entered the industry back in the mid-60s, 1960s, uh, how many dealers knew how to deal any card from the deck or to switch the dice while they were handling them. Um, so between the protecting from the employees' theft and protecting from players on the outside who were thieves, um, that was the number one job. Later, of course, we got all kinds of camera equipment. There's a special monitoring room, and the people on the floor don't even worry about it today. The rest of it, back then, um, their job was to take care of the customers. For gambling, um, players, their number one interest is in the gamble. But their second thing, which is very high, is uh, personal recognition. And the industry developed great hosting. And uh, when I had my two casinos, for example, knowing this all so well, if a player walked into my casino, if they were a slot player or a table player, uh, they wouldn't wait to greet them, my dealers and, and uh, executives, uh, they would call out as soon as they saw them, Hey, Joe, how you doing? How would you like a steak dinner? And if the guy was a regular player, you knew he was going to play, you'd give him the meal up front. And if he was a friend, the friend would look at him and say, My goodness, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. And 
So that personal recognition was a huge part of it. Uh, the original owners back uh, until the corporations came uh, in the up up into the 70s and 80s when the switchover started occurring. Most of the owners, most of the executives gambled. Like me, that's why we got into the business. We loved to gamble. They instinctively knew what a player wanted because they were a player. I wrote in a book that I, uh, that, uh, the University of Nevada Reno published in the year 2000 called Designing Casinos to Dominate the Competition. And I wrote in there and expected a backlash and Everybody agrees with me. It shocked me that once the corporations arrived, the people who make the decisions in the casinos, not one of them today has ever gambled, has ever associated with anyone who's gambled, and doesn't know any of their players. When they go through the casino, they're walking and talking to someone going to food or entertainment. So we have people running the casinos and marketing them that don't have a clue what their customers want, and people that are players have a very different set of expectations than the average person. It even switches, interestingly enough, when uh, people uh, are entering a casino and when they're entering a retail store. And I'll explain that when you enter a casino, you will, people are looking for, uh, two things when they enter a casino. One, they want to see a lot of people there. They want to see a place in action. And then they want to get a smaller, more intimate area where they can relax. And that's the second goal. Now, when you enter a casino, if you don't have active equipment within 10 feet of the door, the number of people walking through who will stop and gamble drops significantly with every foot further from the door. You want to hit them real fast with it. Yet when these gamblers go to a retail store, they're like everybody else. It's interesting that in a retail store, a lot of research has been done on this as well, when you enter a retail store, For the first 10 feet, you don't want anything because the people are looking around, figuring out the layout and where everything's located they're interested in. So for many years, there was retailers who thought, well, if I can't sell anything in the first 10 feet, I'll advertise. But that doesn't work because if you're looking at the signs in front of you, that 10 foot keeps getting pushed back because you haven't been able to study it. So if you put signs in those first 10 feet, then the people won't stop at the displays for the next 10 feet because that's when they start looking. So gamblers even behave differently in different settings. But if you don't understand the gambler, uh, you're making decisions that are completely irrelevant, and that has been going on now for a lot of years. But these places used to be designed and operated to cater to the players. And um, up until uh, 1989, when the Mirage opened, it began the mega resort era, uh, huge hotels, everything was the gambling business. Uh, Las Vegas was known as the casino center of the world and the entertainment center. The major hotels had a big showroom. Every three weeks they had a new superstar. They had all the greatest American superstars and the stars from other countries, singers who uh, uh, sold records in America. They would bring those over if they were known to the American public. Um, and so you had uh, all of this... Uh, great entertainment, the gambling, and everything was a lost leader. Every department lost money except the casino made big money, the rooms made decent money. Uh, you didn't worry about charging the most because you only wanted players in your rooms, and then uh, if they played enough, you'd give them a free trip. Uh, next time they came, the room, the food, the beverage, everything was on the house. Mm-hmm. 
that all changed in 1989 when they decided that every department would make money. They would charge as much as they can. It used to be in the gambling days, they had a flat rate. Didn't matter what time of the year, it was a flat rate, everyone knew it, and you either accepted it or you didn't. Now, the rate goes up and down by how busy they are and how many rooms they have left on a given day or a given week or weekend. Um, and everything makes money, but they've lost the gamble. There are many strip hotels that in their busiest times, on Saturday night when the town is sold out, when they have all of their rooms filled, <clears throat> their slot departments can't get over 5% occupancy. I used to walk my casinos around the clock and check the business. And during busy periods, if I didn't have over 90% occupancy, I wondered how I had failed and tried to figure out what I could do about it. Today, they're satisfied at 5%. They've become amenity casinos. Uh, they're just a sidelight today. The main draw is conventions. And the second biggest draw to town, uh, the group that's coming, is for the party nightclubs and pool parties. Um, and gambling is way low on the list. Um, it is completely converted to a very, very different experience. And, and look, Bill, I wanted to kind of just dive into the kind of casino designing. You're kind of mentioning a few things there about casinos listening to players and how that's kind of changed. So I want to run through a few things that I've read and a few things that are kind of popular wisdom and then a few things that are maybe hearsay and, and kind of get your opinions on them. So in terms of the way a casino is designed. So for example, um, the first one is uh, the floor plan. They're designed to be a bit of a labyrinth where you can't see the exits. Is that true? Uh, and if so, why does it work? Well, of course, you don't want to play the exits. Uh, uh, these are the basic uh, factors that affect players. This, this is what the players are looking for. When they come in, they want to see a busy place, but they're looking for an intimate area. They want a relatively small area they're in. That's the way every casino was because the owners and the operators instinctively understood it. Today, it is a huge barn. The ceiling's very high. Whenever, and I've been, you know, consulted around the world and know people in the business and they, um, uh, no one's ever found an exception to these rules that I'm giving you anywhere. The casino with the lowest ceiling will have the most players. They don't want a big barn. The casino that's broken up into the most small areas will have the most players. On aisles, you don't want long aisles where you can see forever. You can break them up any way you want to, but the maze effect works best. I had two casinos that were long-time losers for the Howard Hughes empire. He was the richest man in the world, and it was the biggest private company that I worked for. And they had two casinos that had lost money for um, uh, many years, even though they were in the heart of the Strip. And I came in with uh, proper design, proper marketing, and they just boomed. I mean, they were the top, uh, in the list of the very top money makers. And one of the things I did, I put in maze layouts where you keep having to turn and and you can't see far ahead of you. And when you do that, we kept focusing the attention of people on the gaming equipment. To step back in 1895, and I'm talking about America, not Australia, because I know my history, not yours. A man by the name of Woolworth started the department store. He had a little retail store, and at that time... They used to put stuff behind the cashier on shelves and you'd ask to see stuff and they'd have to reach way high for stuff. 
and he started putting out display cabinets, and he put just thrust everything in front of everybody, and his place boomed, and he opened them up across the country, and that was the beginning of understanding the department store is you don't want to see everything and you want to have short aisles and you want to force people to keep walking towards display cases. You want them looking at the stuff you're selling. And that became his great achievement. Well, in a casino, we are selling gaming. So I do everything possible to make people keep looking at slot faces and tables and seeing the action. But mm-hmm. they've gone in a completely different way. They are big open barns. You walk in, you see everything. There's no sense of excitement. It's all just uh, a huge hodgepodge. And they put so much lighting up on the ceilings and sometimes on the walls. You can walk through a whole casino and you don't even look at the gaming. You aren't even aware you were in the casino. And then they wonder why they have no business. The goal is to keep them focused on the activity, keep them as close as possible, keep them seeing the equipment. Just to kind of wind back to what you were saying before, I think it's interesting, um, this gentleman, Woolworth, I might note we have a uh, grocery um, chain in Australia called Woolworths. So oh. I wonder whether that's the same <laughs> The same historical uh, significance there um, and whether they were all kind of born out of the same um, origin. Something did kind of come up as you were talking there, Bill, that I wanted to ask. Um, you know, you talked about the, the lower ceilings and the more intimate feeling casinos tend to have more players. I want to ask, like, why is that? I'm only speculating what I'm going to tell you I want to emphasize I have no facts to back it up, but this is the way the P, if you use this as your mindset, you will get to the right conclusion, even if this isn't what's motivating them. When people gamble, they are focused right in front of them. They are around strangers and they are completely unaware of everybody. And they don't want to have their back completely exposed. They're vulnerable. Now, I don't know if that is in fact what's causing it, but if you think like that and make these places feel safe, if you close your eyes and you're not aware of anything, that is when they'll be jammed. And casinos have a a, a number of other ways that they, I guess, instill this safety or a few other kind of like psychological tricks they use on people. For example, in in Las Vegas, it's very common to get free drinks if you're gambling. There's an element of trying to get people more inebriated and drunk, which makes them more risk-taking as well. But it also makes you feel more, more safe and relaxed. So, you know, there's some kind of, I guess, marketing psychology behind that. Uh, just to interrupt you a second, obviously... There can be a, a Machiavellian element in there, but the, there is some correlation between the drinking and gambling that I cannot define for you. But when I was a very uh, frequent gambler, I had to quit. I didn't gamble until I had had two drinks. You know, I was just, I wasn't loaded. I was just get to the point I'm feeling good. Mm-hmm. So. Part of it is the players demand the alcohol, or to put it another way, if you had a casino that didn't serve alcohol, it would be empty. You know, it's yeah. just, it's part of the actual process that many, many gamblers go through. They use yeah. the two of them to get the balance thereafter. Uh, I mean, gambling is, the reason it becomes addictive, it is a form of anxiety reduction and so you use the booze and the gamble as a combination to get where you want to be with your mood Mm -hmm. and then there's there's other things that uh that that you know inbuilt within a lot of casinos like uh, the fact that there's no clocks um easily visible no windows the temperature is always the same you know you can't even a bit of a time warp um you don't know where you are, except for, like you said before, like just what's directly in front of you. 
Is that kind of thing something that was always the case, or was that did that kind of develop through the, through that, the period that, that you were? That developed in the early days of gambling. Um, they often had glass windows because they wanted to uh, draw people in, and as a courtesy, they would have clocks so people knew when they had a, to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. But the early authors on gambling, of course, made the owners Machiavellian and manipulative and said they took out the windows and they took out the clocks, which every no casino I've ever been in has clocks in it, and very few of them have windows. But it wasn't the operators that led to this, it was the players. And I am part of what caused it, and I can't even explain this one. But when I was out gambling all night, and of course it wasn't a day that I had to work, when that sunlight came up and I saw it hit somewhere in the room, it destroyed my mood. Even though I didn't have to go anywhere, I lost my interest. I can't tell you why. So the players complained. They said, we don't want the sun coming in. We don't want to know that it's sunny outside, so get the clocks out. It was the players like myself who said, you're ruining my gamble. Right. So rather and I can't than... tell you why that does it, but when that light comes up, um, I, I doubt it very much if this is a vampire effect, but it looks <laughs> like it because you got to get the heck out of there. Yeah, I, I mean, like, it's it's really interesting having this discussion with you because um, I'm kind of approaching it with, with the presumption that casinos are trying to extort money from people and every decision they make is to, to keep people gambling for longer and, like like you said, Machiavellian, whereas um, you're kind of taking it from the perspective of this is what, what the customer wants. The customer, you know, casinos have made these decisions based on the way their customers behave and what they're demanding. I've never really thought of it that way before. So, so that's really fascinating. And, and excuse me a second. At the Castaways, which was one of the two places I had on the strip, the Castaways and Slipper, I wanted the building, the, the company, because I made so much money, would have done anything I asked. But part of my job was to produce the most profits. And one of the factors is I don't spend capital. I don't have to spend. Well, it was a building that didn't look like a casino. And I wanted to draw in the people walking and driving by. So I put glass windows in. But knowing this, at nighttime, we opened up the windows because it was dark outside and there was all the beautiful little shimmering, glittering lights of the strip. And it felt wonderful at nighttime. But before the sun came up, my crew would go around and they'd pull down an extremely dark shade. It wasn't 100%, so people driving by could see the slot machines and so on, but inside it was almost obliterated the world. And they just didn't hang there. I meant they slid down, so they sealed off the window. But Mm -hmm. again, it was always to accommodate what the player wanted. This is what Mm -hmm. they want. This is what they're going to get. Sure. There's two other kind of questions I I had about casino psychology, I suppose. Um, The second last one is casino chips. So there's there's been a uh, written about this and speculated and and you know research done that uh, I guess converting real hard cash into some sort of an inanimate object um, makes it feel less like money um, and more just like something else that you that you kind of can't conceive the, the value of it. Was that something that players demanded, or I don't know if you're right or not that the chips have a different value than the cash. You may be 100% right on that, but I just don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm always well aware when I'm gambling of exactly when I look at the colors there, I know exactly the amount of money it represents. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you that I'm not more prone to bet with chips. I just don't have an answer to that. But the reason they went to chips, think how slow it would be Every time someone won, 
to take and count down their cash. How hard it would be for someone to verify the count was correct and then to cut out the cash for them. So they went to chips because, and that was one of the things that fascinated me was the incredible dexterity of a good dealer is the ability to get those chips out fast, uh, particularly mm-hmm. like in blackjack when you have to pay one and a half to one and you're dealing with multiple colors and uh, there's bets on the crap table that you pay off in different ratios. So they went to chips just from a practical point of view, but your actual question, does it affect the player because you know, they know exactly how much they have in front of them? I can't answer. I don't know. And then the last one, which is a bit of a rumor, but I wanted to ask um, whether you have heard of this. I heard that they pump pure oxygen into casinos to make people happier and keep them awake longer. Is that something that has happened at any casinos that you've worked at or that you know of? Um, I have seen signs, and and I'm number one, I'm not an expert on this. Okay, so I really don't know who's done what, but... Years ago, I saw a few casinos that had a sign that they're adding oxygen to the air. I couldn't feel any effect from it. I don't know what good it would do, um, but they've tried things. Uh, Hilton Corporation made a big deal that they tried aromatherapy, and mm-hmm. they around their slot one group of slot machines they put aroma in. They wouldn't tell what the aroma was. Um, They wouldn't tell how much the machine business went up. They wouldn't tell if it took away from other machines or people played longer. Uh, And I didn't know of them going on with it. I'm dubious. I'm a true believer in aromatherapy because it has helped me and numerous other people I know for certain things. As a player, I can't imagine it. I can't tell you it wouldn't happen, but I don't know of anyone else trying anything like that. Um, there are people always looking for edges. Uh, the difference in going into a casino today and back then, they're missing the point with these kind of minor effects. It used to be that we had change girls in the slot department. You couldn't be anywhere without seeing a change girl. Today, you can walk through a gigantic slot department and not find one employee in the whole place. Yep. It's as impersonal as being in a hospital emergency room. It's big, it's empty, and there's nobody there to greet you. If I had a casino, when I removed the change girls as it became electronic, I would have put hostesses in. Mm-hmm. and hostesses of the age of my customers. Um, it's amazing how they. so many people think, oh, I'm going to put in beautiful young girls. Well, that works if you're after men who are chasing girls, but we're after gamblers. This is my interview with Bill Friedman, and you just heard part two, casino management and how casinos are designed to keep their players focused on gambling. Next up is part three, marketing and what you can learn from how gangsters operated their Vegas casinos. We talk about the famous marketing campaign, What Happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas. Bill shares some of his marketing campaigns that he used in his casinos, and we summarize the modern day marketing lessons that gangsters used in their casinos and what you can take away to implement to your campaigns. So let's return to my chat with Bill. Bill, I wanted to transition more broadly from from just looking at casinos now to um, to Las Vegas in general and kind of how Las Vegas as a as a destination has been marketed and changed over the years. Now, in terms of the transition from what they used to be to what they are today, we'll get to that in in a moment. But what I wanted to ask you about first was Las Vegas tourism. There was a campaign released in the early 2000s, What Happens in Vegas Stays There, or what's kind of commonly known as What Happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas. Incredibly successful um, advertising campaign 
the implication from that is you can come here and um, it had the implication of a sexual overtone. You know, you can come here and party. Uh, Las Vegas has more strippers per capita than any city in America. And uh, you have the clubs where you can come meet people. And it was just saying, you come here and you're safe. No one's mm-hmm. ever going to know. That was the implication of it. And do you think it was successful, that that style of branding? Because, you know, it's creating a brand for Las Vegas. It certainly became famous. Um, um, but because it didn't involve the casino, you know, I didn't keep up with it. Um, in the, you know, the earlier era, they, they were pushing the, the gaming uh, and this was pushing whole different things that that weren't of my uh, orientation. So I'm, I just uh, I did not keep up with it. Yeah, sure. So just in in regards to um, marketing casinos back when you know the gambling was really the heyday of Las Vegas. We, we were talking about this the other day, actually, when we spoke. Some famous marketing campaigns that casinos did to get people through the door. In fact, some that you ran specifically. Is there any few examples you want to share? Yeah, um, my goal was always to be different um, in every way. In other words, if I had a competitor that had an incredible buffet, my goal wouldn't be to have a buffet that was 4% better. My goal would be to look at all the food items they sold throughout the facility and figure out where aren't they giving people something or where aren't they doing it good. Mm-hmm. And then come and hit them real hard with their weaknesses. And with the, I just had an incredible local agency with the ad campaigns and we were infamous for the things we do one of the most successful and got us no end of talk for many years there was a law in clark county which las vegas is part of so it meant the casinos on the strip and in downtown they could not give away products as prizes for slot machines you could only give cash. Well, they changed the law to allow them to give away products. And every casino immediately began giving away a new car. Some of the smaller casinos gave away a motorcycle. And depending on the uh, uh, economic group that was players, it could be a low-end car or it could be a very luxurious car. And so everybody was giving away a new vehicle. Well, I took a little different approach, and we had two newspapers in town, and I bought a full page in both papers, which was a big sum of money. I meant this wasn't done. Okay, just get me an ad. I'm buying a whole page in two papers, and so it was a big outlay from our ad budget, and I took a whole page on the same day in both newspapers and I had it completely blank except for four huge block words in it. And all it said was, win a used car. <laughs> and of course, the dissonance caught people. The whole town was talking about what a crazy man I was. And at the bottom, I had a small picture of a classic 1957 Thunderbird with all original equipment. Um, they call it mint here, yep. meaning everything was either originally with this car or it was taken off another one. Um, and so everything in it was part of the original. The, I, I brought it into the casino. I put it up above eight slot machines. Now, let me think, because... I'm thinking now because they wrapped around the whole thing. I mm-hmm. haven't thought about it for years. Um, yeah, we had about 18 machines on it. And those machines for the next 10 years won more money than any other machines in the state of Nevada. Because there was a lot of car buffs that wanted this perfect car. Those are two very interesting examples. And there's a few lessons that I 
immediately glean from those. But I'm interested in your perspective. What could today's marketers, not just necessarily in casinos, you know, marketers of technology products, food products, travel, whatever, what can marketers learn from some of those strategies that were successful uh, in, in Las Vegas? The goal of all the great competitors I was up against, and I was up against really good people. I used to whine about it to my close associates, you know, why do I have to have such tough competitors? <laughs> the fact was they made me keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And what all the great competitors did, they had a clear brand. Every one of them had at least one food item sometimes more, that was totally unique to them. People would come all over town for it. It didn't have to be something no one else was serving. It had to be done so well that you had to do it. There was a casino in Reno. It was a little slot arcade, and I mean tiny, 25 feet wide, probably 75 feet long, and it had a little restaurant and back, very hard to get parking to go there. I could not go to Reno without getting their hamburger. They called it the Awful Awful. It's now gone, but for 50 years, it was the most known food product in Reno. There was no one that you could run into in Reno and say, where can I get the Awful Awful? And they'd tell you which club to go to. Um, But The way they made it and the presentation of it was very special. And every place did that. They, one, branded themselves with unique, and they always had, for a casino, the special food product. And the gamble is so important. Some marketing lessons that I've kind of taken out of um, what you've been saying this call the, the first that's really apparent, and you know, I'm going to speak in marketing terms now, which is maybe not language that you would necessarily use, but you're, you're upping the principles, um, even though you, you maybe didn't know that you were. So the first is just knowing your customer in general, and I think you know that's been really apparent from a lot of the examples you've given and some of the questions I was asking earlier. I was kind of taking the establishment's perspective, and you always brought it back to the customer, which is really marketing 101. So that's really important. The second is something we talked about just a couple of minutes ago, which is about having something unique in the casinos that you run, you know, looking at all your competitors and going, all right, what can we do differently? And what we call that in marketing is a a unique selling proposition or a a point of differentiation, um, a way to stand out from the crowd. Because if you're just competing on the same things, you're never going to get ahead. Um, so, So that's probably the second thing. And the third thing, I think, that I think you did really well is um, doing things that uh, will capture people's attention. So in today's world, we call that having ideas that are PRable, I suppose. You know, that'll that'll generate um, PR or news coverage, things that will go viral. And I think you know your personality has a, a an in, in, innate sense of uh, trying to do things that will stand out. So that those are kind of the three lessons that I've taken from this call, which has been really interesting. So thank you for sharing those. This has been a fascinating chat, Bill. I, I, I don't know that there's another person on the planet with your wealth of experience and, and knowledge and history in this industry. So um, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast and, uh, and yeah, give you an opportunity to uh, plug anything that you... Um, you're excited about or working on at the moment? My my website, Bill Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, author.com, and it has uh, for speaking engagements about the history of Nevada um, and my books, and my current book is 30 Illegal Years to the Strip, which is the history of organized crime. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Mate. This was a a really fascinating discussion, probably one of the most interesting episodes of Mate that uh, I think we've ever had. And I just wanted to share a really quick anecdote with you about how I arranged this. Um, When I was in Vegas, I was was doing some research about um, the history of Vegas and and how casinos operate. And uh, I found Bill online and and, uh, there was a number on his website that I decided to call. 
Um, I literally called a stranger with no context, no warning, and he answered. I introduced myself and I asked him if he'd come on the podcast. And uh, a few days later, we recorded the interview that you just heard. Um, So, sometimes you need to step outside your comfort zone and, and on this occasion, I'm really glad that I did. Now, show notes for this episode of Mate can be found at the website matepodcast.com slash 13. And I wanted to say a really big thank you to Bill Friedman for coming on the show, for sharing your knowledge, the history of Las Vegas, and some of your amazingly interesting stories. Editing and mixing help for this episode was by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The Mate logo is by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. This was Mate Podcast and it was recorded via phone when I was in Mountain View, California and Bill was in Las Vegas, Nevada, United States. But as always, and you know the rest of this sentence, it was made with love in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. Listener.